Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. Good evening, good afternoon, good day. I'm Edward in the studio and I am the executive producer of the Spotlight. Here are some of my favourite clips. There was a scientist, a woman of color, she put up a poll on Twitter asking about whether scientists felt the need to teach their students about racism. Um, And I responded by saying, I think, you know, not only do we need to teach our students about racism in science, but also scientific racism and race science. And I got abuse for that. And I also got a lot of scientists saying science is objective. So what do you mean? If we were going to judge by their avatars on their profile pictures, these are people who are my age, you know? So first of all, the notion that these are old ways of thinking is, you know, that goes right out the window. We know that 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 is not the case. And then, you know, there's always this temptation to use this science as objective to to push back against any kind of accountability. Even from my research career, I know that scientists, myself included, don't have a very good grasp of race and the history of race. And perhaps in a way, this is due to, you know, how we've been trained. Mm. And the fact that we have been trained to take on what our teachers say as gospel and what our textbooks say as gospel and questioning that and questioning the racism itself then becomes as if we're being subjective and and we know that that's not the case at all right and so i want to then lead on into the practice of race science and you know all forms of racism within science and we know again that there are some in this sector there are some malevolent players, if I can use that phrase, who are always very quick to run for the calipers, you know, and start testing the perimeter of the skull and linking IQ to race. We know that. We know that that happens very unfortunately. At the same time, I'm also thinking about the well-intentioned scientists who often do research that still involves race. And I'm going to hold my hands up here and say that in my research portfolio, in my master's and in the optimization phase of my PhD, I was complicit in this. I was complicit in biological essentialism and in always thinking that race was a legitimate factor to be studied. I saw a tweet from a brilliant scientist and science communicator, Medina Wayne, a couple of days ago, who said that the problem is that we are drawing conclusions that are basically only one part of the picture. We are forgetting about histories. We're forgetting about injustices. And again, you know, thinking about this science is so objective. What we tend to do as scientists often is say, well, these are the conclusions I've done or I've drawn based on standardized experiments So how dare you tell me this is injustice? It's not injustice because people often like to say, well, if I put a chemical into a cell line or into some cells that I've extracted and I measure with equipment that I know is not faulty and I get these results, then this is the full picture. But I think what is happening is that we're drawing conclusions based on a couple of puzzle pieces. Our conclusions are painting a whole picture based on only a couple of puzzle pieces. So again, I just want to say that this is what I've been complicit in. And I have been doing a lot of thinking about why I never questioned, why I never 
critically thought about the fact that I am so comfortable with thinking about race, sex, gender, and I didn't even fully have a grasp again of their histories, um, what they meant, how perhaps in the future any of the conclusions I've drawn could be misused by those who are invested in anti-Blackness. Again, what I found is that this is how I was taught. This is how I was trained to think. I'm going to say a couple of names to you, and I want you to give me your thoughts on those people. Okay. Okay? So, uh, Mira Makiba. Oh, Mama Wade, to Mtuli. Oh, you see now. Okay, English. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, mother of a nation, beautiful, beautiful woman. Uh, problematic sometimes because she presented womanhood very closely with uh, motherhood, mm. which is uh, becomes problematic when you're thinking about uh, where gender is moving towards um, and the types of women and that category of women that we need to have. But, um, oh, amazing, amazing, amazing person. Um, I think someone who's very understudied mm. um, and has been boxed into one thing because that is what women were previously. Mm. You were a mother and then you were either a political activist or a musician and so on. Yeah. Um, so it would be great for us to widen the scope of what she can offer besides just the music. In as much as music was healing and also political at the time. Interesting. Mm. Nelson Mandela. Yo. Overburdened legacy. Yeah. Um, a legacy that doesn't sometimes make space for true liberation of women. Mm. Um, I'm going to be as bold as to say that we haven't fully discovered whether or not he was a uh, wife beater. Mm. If we think about uh, Evelyn and uh, the struggles that she's been saying, she, yeah. well, she was saying that um, she was having. So Nelson Mandela's um, ex ex wife, former first, first one, wife, yeah. first one, first wife. Um, so I think also there's something there's something there that we need to discuss. Um, I think also there's an image of Mandela that we've been given. Um, so it would be wonderful to understand the true Mandela. Yeah. Um, his mind was very much his, but his body and his spirit and his characteristics were ours. Yeah, mm. that's very interesting, uh, Winnie. Yo, Bogoto. Mm. True definition of Mbokoto. Mbokoto being loosely translated as a rock. Yeah. Um, she was the rock on which people leaned on. She was the rock that people threw uh, to whiteness. Um, she was dangled as well as leverage for a lot of uh, people in, in the struggle. Yeah, man, the true definition of a rock. Um, a person who I think has a lot to contribute to feminist scholarship, but has not been given the opportunity to because she's an adjunct of a much bigger legacy. Yeah. Um, so we need to remember her as Unomzamo Matigizela rather than Winnie Mandela. Yeah, I love that. Hugh Masekela. Yeah, powerful, inspirational, um, grandfatherly as well. I think he represented someone that everyone can uh, relate to. He was in my mind someone who helped with mental instability mm. at the time of apartheid and even further you know just reminding south africa um about its history but in such a, a playful way yeah using then um jazz music so yeah jacob zuma womanizer conniving embezzler <laughs> look i don't worry about uh, money anymore in corruption in south africa because i think everyone's got some skeleton in the closet yeah i don't think we can pretend as if 
again, cops don't run after someone who's not problematic. So I think Mandela as well, to a certain extent, can tell us a few stories about things that they did yeah. to get money, to get out of the country, and yeah. so on. So everyone's got that characteristic when it comes to radicalism. So corruption and embezzlement for me is out of the way, but definitely womanizer, conniving uh, politician, strategic, but also quite resourceful and important to the history of South Africa. The lack of respect of people who are very invested in science in forms of knowledge that are not scientific knowledge is a real problem, right? There's a kind of arrogance that you can get built in to the status that you get as a scientist where you think, you know, history has nothing to offer me. Social science has nothing to offer me. Philosophy is, has nothing to offer me. When actually, no, that's, that's, that's foolishness. But you can see how people end up in that situation. And then they're so invested and you present what you have done, what you have put your blood, sweat and tears into, what you've invested, your whole sense of self, your ego, that's a bad thing. It makes people unhappy. It makes people feel defensive. And that sometimes they behave very, very badly in response to that. What I want and what I try to do is try to think about supporting people in doing the thinking things all the way through, giving them the pieces of information to help them kind of unpick, but also to think not let's put down all the tools of science and and stop. Then that only leaves people doing science who are totally, as you can you know, talk about bad actors, people who are totally committed to- uh, Malevolence, wickedness. Yes, exactly. And, and, and I, I know those people. Sometimes I have worked with those people. There are people who are really committed. We all have. You know, die hard racists who really believe, you know, there are people out there who believe in concepts of genocide. It's incredible. Dig beneath the surface, you'll find that you may know them even the listeners, you don't want to leave science just to people who use the power of it for, for bad aims. How do, but how do you stay in there? And I think that's the, it is really hard work. You have to be really honest with yourself, right? In that way that actually is what the concept of science that a lot of us who are trained, you know, in this, in the last say 50 years, that we're, we're really invested in that kind of idea of science of like, of trying to get to to what are the non-arbitrary truths? What are, you know, the things we can really stand behind? The efforts that, that are made in science can be so valuable and, and can, you know, and we can work on yeah. how to make them less, less harmful. There's a reason to stay in there and to be, you know, to be as, a, as one scientist, to be able to talk to another and say, why, does, why is it that you think this? How do I help you move beyond the assumption that your ethnicity variable is underpinned by some kind of biology, you know? Like I know why yes. you think that because you're bringing your concepts from home that you've never investigated. You've never read about the concept of ethnicity. It seems you have no knowledge of ethnicity is really trying to cover up for a, an older idea of race that was created explicitly for the purpose of domination and justifying terrible violence that you would not actually stand behind, but also that you don't know about that history of violence because exactly. you weren't taught about that history either. Exactly, you weren't taught. I'm really intrigued to know, and I suppose from a UK perspective, we have to negotiate racism in the academy in a variance of ways through racial microaggressions, through hyper surveillance, through questioning of capabilities. Mm -hmm. And as I've mentioned often, this is kind of exacerbated for women of colour, in particular black women. So one of the things that I'm kind of just really interested in is to kind of understand that. And I'm sure, you know, the UK kind of audience would be in terms of a South African context, what does that look like and why is it so much more complicated? Mm. There's obviously the obvious notion of the kind of historical past of apartheid, but what are the other factors that kind of go into this as well? Because I feel like you have a really crazy situation where something like 8 to 10% of the population in South Africa is white, the rest is, is black, 
or people of colour or ethnic minorities, mm. but in terms of how that proliferates into university space, it's still very few in number. Yeah. So explain that context, because for me, that's, that's just fascinating. Yeah. Look, I think at the core of the complexities of uh, studying racism in higher education here in South Africa, or even having to, or being able to put your finger on what's going on, is understanding the history behind why each university was created. Because certain universities carry the burdens of those histories. For example, Nelson Mandela University was created for... Oh, you know, the suspicions of the Pudor Bond and all yeah. of that. But um, it was created then for uh, white African excellence. Mm. So Afrikaans men and women were sent to UPE, University of Port mm. Elizabeth at the time, to excel and sort of be at the same level or create then this, this cohort mm. of intellectual engineering or whatever it yeah. is, Afrikaans yeah. uh, people to then stand next to mm or at least in the same spotlight as mm. English, British English right. uh, white people. So we had then that, and then the bringing in then of black people in UPE, I mean, this Bird Street, Bird Street campus where we are currently doing mm. this uh, particular podcast was for black people. Right. And being on this campus, you had to write a note and uh, motivate why you want to share the space with white Afrikaans men and women. Wow. Yeah. So universities were created with that intention in mind. And something that hasn't been done in South Africa is that post-1994, we haven't discussed why the university exists so that we can put our finger on why it still feels racist now. So you've got then in universities this inheritance of those academics that come from apartheid. And for some reason, you know, obviously we know that apartheid never left because the people who were thinking racist thoughts and people who were carrying out racism in South Africa, they never left as well. So here they are now sitting as professors, full qualified professors. Um, They're sitting and they're lecturing as well. So you see then that reproduction of that same kind of um, ideologies that that started the university or the principles that the university was founded on. So each university has then that particular history. But... The more we find black people, you know, you find black enclaves in the universities Mm. and you find all black people clustered either in social sciences or you find all black people clustered in political uh, studies or uh, public admin and so on. So we've got our spaces at black people, but even there, there's still this this texture of racism. But now, because there's a black face Mm. behind the door or inside the office where a white person was, Mm. you can't really put your finger on it. And that's why it becomes so complicated to discuss um, racism in higher education here. Even if we look at the ranking of universities in South Africa, yes, a lot of the universities that are still ranked number two, number one, have now incorporated black academics into their broader structure. Stellenbosch be a good example of that. Stellenbosch, UCT, Wits University, UJ is also one that's coming up. Um, And I mean, UJ, a lot of people will point out UJ as, okay, UJ has a lot of black people, but where are those black academics? Could you just explain for um, Mm. the UK listeners... Uh, what EJ is University of Johannesburg yeah. and University of Johannesburg is one uh, there's a in 1994 towards 2002 2003 yeah. the um, South African government decided that there must be universities that come together to create yeah. one university right. um, so U- University of Johannesburg was one of them and they brought together then what they have now is the Soweto campus yeah. um, there's a campus in uh, Melville I think as or yeah. something like that As a university that came together, a merged university, it was supposed to then be almost a hub of transformation. And that's where you saw, you know, a lot of black academics going there, transformation, the picture of beautiful black children Mm. walking in and out of UJ. Almost that symbolism of diversity. Mm. But 
what what we didn't do then when it comes to those merged universities is that at the center was always that university that had the most white people yeah. for example here at Nelson Mandela University UPE had the most white people mm. and then when the university merged with then Vista University which was a black university yeah. Birch Street campus which was a black university every single thing that is good about this university still exists mm. at where UPE was now called South Campus right so we've renamed it, we've given it a different name, we've given it a different face. It still carries every single thing that was racist about the university. Yeah. You've just asked someone else to click the button of yes and no. The way people respond to your identity, the questions they have about it can be very different. Yeah. Yeah. So with me, now that I'm outside of Scotland, my accent seems to be the first um, point of interest before I get the comments which make it clear in terms of how people are racialising me. Right. Whereas in Scotland, where you're not going to find, say, nearly as many black people as you are mm. in perhaps certain cities in England, um, your your black identity or blackness is read in very different ways. Right. There's a much more, there's a real flattening of the differences mm-hmm. between how black people live and between their cultural background, I would say, in some of those parts of the UK. So I think, I feel everything yeah. that's being said today comes back to your point about the national specific yeah. or, or you know the co- regionally, re- yeah. regionally geoculturally specific nature absolutely. of race racism black experiences and yeah. that's why your book is going to be so vital yeah. and so important <laughs> absolutely and that's why your work as well is going to yeah. shed so much light on what's happening on, in the uk and how that relates to around the world yeah mm. well i was going to say um my partner is lighter skin than i am right and mm. i'm always making this joke like i'm 12 shades darker than you right <laughs> like 11 people could stand between us you know um it's <laughs> just like not necessarily true but close right um <laughs> And 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 what I laugh about is like you know that his blackness is never questioned like yeah. whatsoever right but for me it's like this giant question mark and I'm like I just can't believe this I'm just blacker than you you yeah. know what I mean like and so that's our that's like my running joke about it. yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's really important to I mean thank you for sharing that because I think it makes so much sense mm. and that relation between how people are racialized you know one of the things that I develop in the book is um, what I'm calling the critical cartographies of racialization mm. which is precise framework that is allowing me to say I'm gonna put Afro-Latinx Caribbean people into relation with Equatorial Guinea, mm-hmm. even though some folks are like, you know, what Ngugi Wathiongo calls something torn and new, right? Mm-hmm. Like these Afro-descendant people, mm-hmm. and some people are African, right? Like, and there's no way to be like comparing them. Like, mm-hmm. comparing them doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the critical criteria of racialization are really thinking about like the kind of phenomenology and um, and the kind of like ontogeny, right? Mm-hmm. Like these kinds of experiences, um, and saying like, well, in Equatorial Guinea, I have to think about how people are different ethnic groups, and they're like, you know, Benga and Dowe, mm-hmm. they're Fang, they're Bubi, whatever, and those are very specific ethnic groups with very specific kind of histories and hierarchies within that mm-hmm. nation state that matter, and they have their own languages, et cetera, et cetera. But that when they go to Spain, they are racialized mm-hmm. as black, right? And so really trying to think about the way that when you move, the way that you're racialized is moved, right? Mm-hmm. It, it changes. It's the same thing with the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Our logics of racism, of racialization, <laughs> Freudian slip there. Um, our logics of racism are based on mestizaje, right? Racial mixing, mm-hmm. which comes out with a thousand different categories for mm-hmm. what you possibly could be. None of them are black unless you're really black, 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 mm-hmm. right? Um, it's always a move towards whiteness. It's always a move mm-hmm. towards bettering the race, right? In the Spanish-speaking um, world. Um, but then when that that like migration to the United States of this Anglo world where hypodescendants have ruled the one-drop rule, it means that people are like mind boggled when they go from a place where they're like, I'm not black, I'm Trigueña, or I'm not yeah. black, I'm, you know, Morena or whatever. And you go to a place where it's like, you're black or white. <laughs> like, yeah. you got one, right? And so, really thinking about how that shifts, right? Like, depending on where you go. And for me, though, that critical cross-targets of racialization is what helped me hold place mm-hmm. to say, like, okay, just, just come with me here 
and then I'll, now from here we can go to the rest of the book but just know that I'm not trying to collapse these kinds of differences mm. you know I just wanted to say this other thing which is like I was doing field work in Spain many years ago and when I went there I was by myself and it was I was going to Spain first and then to Equatorial Guinea to collect interviews with writers I was being you know treated really terribly I was in Madrid and then I went to Barcelona so I was in Madrid and people yeah, wouldn't talk to me there, yeah. people would like <laughs> I'd give someone money and they'd like tap the counter so I could put it down they didn't want to take it from my hands um I'd ask people questions in the street and like people would be like no me hables like don't talk to me and I'd be like what the hell's going on here and it wasn't until I went to Barcelona that I met with this older woman who's an editor and a writer from Equatorial Guinea there and she was telling me oh Nana how's how's Madrid XYZ and um, I was telling her well you know Remy like it's been really bad I've been like mm -hmm. re I've been I'm alone and people are treating me really mean and she was like oh my darling and she was like oh you just want to they think you're a prostitute she was like you speak with a Caribbean like a Spanish Caribbean accent you're black for them that's all you are and so obviously no one's gonna want to talk to you in public in the daytime oh. right and it took another black woman who's from Spanish-speaking Africa who's a, like now a citizen of Spain because she left there as a, as a young person who's been there for the majority of her life to tell me and to be able to sit with me because people most of the people that I was talking to I would like I'm like am I crazy mm -hmm. like or are people treating me like this and be like oh no you know Spain is whatever and it just took another black woman to be like no listen this is yeah. what's happening and that was really helpful because on the one hand she was able to relate to what mm -hmm. I was saying talk to me honestly about the experience mm -hmm. and not brush it away like you're mm -hmm. just making it up it helped me to equip myself to go back out in public mm -hmm. and to not have this because I was going in there like full boricua like hey like really oh people were like oh no not today you know so then I was like you know what you don't get any of this yeah right and so then now when I go to Spain to do this kind of work I have a very different I have like a Spain personality and it is not like this right, right. thinking yeah. about race and space oh my goodness you know <laughs> one of the things that uh, white people in this country have not done is sit and mourn the loss of power mm. And, you know, I always think about um, a real funeral, like an actual funeral. And I think about, and I'm thinking about like real, not real, eh? not that other funerals are not real, yeah. but um, a, a, a black Tosa funeral yeah. where there is wailing yeah. and crying and people are losing themselves, mourning Every, yeah, every the African loss. funeral you can think of. Yes, yeah. every African funeral there's that. Mm. And sometimes I wish white Africans people could have that moment mm. to mourn truly the loss of power because that is what that's what has happened in South Africa mm. white people have lost power but yeah. they've kept it um, in certain areas of South Africa for example they'll have a university like Stellenbosch University mm. they'll have a university like Northwest Pika Porchestrom University is Afrikaans mm. we know that University of Pretoria also very Afrikaans mm. so they want to keep that little bit of power that they have and then they attach excellence to mm. that power mm. so that that small group of people still comes out of Stellenbosch University and the minute a person is looking at your CV and sees Stellenbosch University you're the first one hired right. so they reproduce in the system of their elitism and their excellence mm. in the broader South African context so within the labor market they've got dominance as well. why because you've kept South Africa, um, Stellenbosch University this hub of excellence based on its Africanism and it's based on its history yeah. and you don't want to change and rename the buildings because oh my goodness the minute you call it shout out and it loses value yeah bullshit yeah <laughs> honestly they they need to mourn that loss of power and i think 
one of the things that um, white people have not done, white Africans people have not done in this country is do the white work. Mm. You know, Christopher Novesta speaks about it, that you, you really are reflexive and you think about what it means to be white, what it, me- what, what, what it means to fear black people, what does it mean to fear um, losing power. They haven't sat and discussed that. Mm. We are the ones that still need to interrogate them. We're the ones that still need to research white people. We're the ones that still need to give them tips on how not to be racist. Yeah, for sure. And that's that's the problem. So I, I think it's it's a legitimate claim in terms of you know them wanting some corner of Africanism in South Africa, but they don't understand that black people have also had to assimilate into something that we don't understand as well. And that's why we have a month or September. Well, September is coming up as Heritage Month. And Heritage Month is where you are allowed to be black. You're allowed to walk into the classroom wearing Iskekesako, Iskoto, and so on, which are traditional attires. Um, There's a day, a public holiday that we all have in September for us to be South African or African, and you represent your heritage and how you're wearing, and you're allowed to speak your language, and so on. And that's very violent. And Afrikaans people want to do what? Have an entire year where they celebrate Afrikaans, where they speak in Afrikaans, where they teach us curriculums in Afrikaans. As if us coming towards us, um, English was almost us meeting in the the middle. And they're not seeing that. Um, So... Yo, man, I think it's such crap. I really have stronger words for it, but I can't. No, you can you can be as strong as you want. I Honestly, mean. it's it's really it's really a mess. It's a mess that white people have not been able to see that in the system of power, they haven't mourned that the power is gone, yeah. and they sit there looking around, pretending as if transformation or equity is oppression. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Equity and transformation are only oppression to the person who had the most had, power. Yeah. So they need to understand that. You must mourn, you must lose power in order for um, equity to, to take place. When I'm teaching something like Intro to Black Studies um, in my classes, I start with 13th and 14th century, mm-hmm. um, thinking about Spain, thinking about uh, the limpieza de sangre, thinking about all of these kinds of violences, these religious violences that are happening um, in the peninsula, and then thinking about how that spreads to the quote unquote Americas, the kind of shifting in logics of of space and time um, and thinking about the dehumanization of others as part of this larger process. And what I do with my students in that class, rather than just making it solely about African-American blackness, I try to explain to them is that you don't even get to have African-American blackness without going Mm. to, you know, understanding this kind of like fight between like the Catholics and the Jews and the Moors, right? Like, (laughs) and the indigenous people in the Caribbean thinking about the expanse of, of colonization and slavery in the Caribbean all throughout Latin America, and it's not only till like 100 plus years later that then you get black slaves in the United States. Mm-hmm. And then as we are doing that class, I am saying like, okay, so this was Jim Crow here, look at South African apartheid here, mm-hmm. right? Look at what's going on here, look at policing here, let's look at policing in Brazil. Let's look at what's going on with race and XYZ in the North, and then also let's look at Puerto Rico and what's happening there. Mm. And so it's for me, it's really important to bring them into different parts of the black diaspora to get a sense of race and always telling them that racism and race is nationally specific. At, at a certain mm. point of the semester, I'm like, racism is... Come on, and they're like, not on Lisbeth. I think you know, like, <laughs> like I, we need to get to that point, you yeah. know. And the other thing I do with them because I want them to know a lot, and I want them to know a lot about a lot of different things and a lot of different forms of resistance, 
is on the first day of class, I give them, I separate them into groups of four and I give them like, a, they can choose out of a bag a name and the name in there is a movement, like a political movement. So they have anything from like the Black Panthers to the Young Lords to the Chicano movement to move mm. to the Mau Mau Rebellion to, right? Like, and so there's 10 different things that they choose and then throughout the semester they have to research it and come up with a creative kind of presentation about it and they have to teach their classmates about what this political movement was. Mm. And it's only because I cannot cover everything in the class, yeah. but they also need to learn what it means because they're like, oh man, I got the, I got AIM or I got Chicano movement. Ah, uh, that's not the one I wanted. And it's like, so you yeah. watch. When you learn this, you're going to be lit, right? Yeah, like yeah. when you see what actually happened here. Um, and so for them, it's this exciting thing to think about you know, not only relations between black people, but this is an ex- experience or an opportunity for them to see relations between them and, and other people mm-hmm. of color, yeah. right, that are resisting in the same way. Um, so, yeah, so th- that's some of the thoughts I have on that. <clears throat> yeah. That's great. And I was going to say the work of Kristen Smith, um, um, a black woman in Brazil, would be amazing. I mean, just thinking about, yeah, she's at UT Austin. Um, and she wrote a book called Afro Paradise. Um, she, her work is really amazing. And her next book is, I think it's something like Sequelae. And thinking about the connections between black women, um, policing, and violence mm-hmm. in Brazil mm-hmm. and in the United States. So bringing, again, that, that diasporic mm-hmm. and relational connection. Mm-hmm. Um, saying it's not enough mm-hmm. for us to just look at ourselves, but look at it in this yeah. kind of larger pattern or sequence. I had a conversation with Kelly Joe and with um, Dr. Foluke at ABC two fantastic scholars, and we were talking about the process of decolonizing one's mind. And Foluke was talking about, you know, the fact that we need to accept that this is going to be a lifelong commitment to learning and unlearning. And Kelly Joe was saying, you know, when we when we are doing this process of decolonizing and, you know, the introspection and, and the inner work, that we also need to be very careful that we do not manifest it as some kind of performance of innocence. Yes. And that has stuck with me because I thought, oh, okay, what does this mean exactly? And, you know, I'm, I'm working that out for myself, but I feel that, you know, that can be also extended to many other things that we're doing in our lives and in our work in social justice. But what I feel that that means is that, you know, we need to go beyond just taking account and saying, oh, this is the bad stuff that I've done, and I'm sorry for it. And we need to make sure that we invest in reparative action, in some form of reparative action. So connecting this with uh, your statement about whistleblowing, I think that those of us who are in this sector, as much as possible, we need to work towards this liberatory pedagogy that I was talking about. And I know that there are many people who are doing that. I know that there are Many people who have written books and who have, I always think about um, Prof. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein's Decolonize um, STEM Pedagogy reading list and how this professor has put in that work to kind of curate this list of resources. I'm thinking about another very powerful voice, Dr. Shea Akil McLean, who keeps, oh my goodness, you know, the way this scholar just keeps sharing so much work on Twitter you know, just through social media. And at the same time, um, I know that Dr. Akil McLean is planning to also do something towards establishing some new course about equity in science, something like that. I am aware that there are a lot of movements towards decolonizing global health. There's one in Edinburgh, there's one in Duke that I know of, and I know that across the world, you know, there are these kind of movements. And when I think about it, the the movements that I know are being led by Black people and people of color as well. So 
we all have a vested interest in this. I do know that we have some strong allies as well, white people and non-black people of color. At the same time, I think, you know, it's just settling or what is settling upon me is the fact that this is a lifelong commitment. It's not just a lifelong commitment towards, you know, doing some great work, but it's also a lifelong commitment towards doing that inner work and making sure that we don't slip into complacency of performing, you know, that innocence and saying, oh, I'm so sorry for everything I've done and take it much further than that. And in a way, it's, it's exciting. It's also nerve wracking. But I want to keep myself on the side of being excited and saying, you know what, Our, we do have what it takes to deal with our personal discomfort. Yes. Our personal discomfort is not going to end us. It will not end us. It will be uncomfortable in the moment. And, you know, there. I think also accepting the fact that we will keep finding things about our portfolios and about ourselves that make us uncomfortable. And just trusting that we have what it takes to deal with it in those moments. And one of the examples I was using to practice some critical technocultural discourse analysis, as, as, yeah, as created by Andre Brock in uh, 2018, and I was using it to look at um, leg washing, which was uh, has become a thing that stands in for whiteness. So we talk about whiteness in a way that no longer uses the word white, but instead it's people who do or don't wash their legs, people who do or don't season their food, and a way that we do that in order to evade the ways that platforms um, crit, um, dampen black dialogue. Okay, I think at this point, it's a good moment for us to, a baby. <laughs> to, to wrap up and, and yes. say, I, I, I think what we're all trying, trying to really get at is this has been a fantastic part of being here, these conversations yeah. right now, learning from different people here, those involved in the Ad Home Intentionally, di Digital Intentionally Black conference last year. And more importantly, we both just want to say thank you so much thank for making the time so to, to speak to us. We've learned so much yes. and I know we've both made notes throughout. Yep. The last thing I think is when is your book coming out? What is it called and where can it be gotten? Okay, it's coming out next fall, I think September, October. It's coming out with uh, Northwestern University Press. Northwestern um, University Press. Decolonizing Diaspora's Radical Mappings of Afro-Atlantic Literature. Yeah, and thank you for inviting me to come talk to y'all. I've, I've learned so much. I'm so excited for everyone's work. Your book is coming out next fall. When's your book coming out? So by the latest winter, maybe yeah. autumn. Um, but yeah, that'll be uh, next year, The Digital Lives of Black Women in Britain. Yes. And I know that there are so many pieces of work in the pipeline for Rihanna as well. Absolutely. So it's an exciting time. It's so an exciting time. Here. Yeah. Yeah. PhD. No, but yeah. And um, um, yeah, the ASA is, is a really um, interesting space and it's gotten a lot more radical, a lot more black in the last few years. And that makes it, I think, just a really wonderful um, space. So thank you. I'm so glad we were able to meet here. We met Yay. last year at Hilt, at Hilt. And so this is, or a year and a half ago. Yeah, so yeah, but thank you. Really glad to see you again. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.